You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. In the name of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Y'all can have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. We are in the fifth week of Lent. Uh, believe it or not, hasn't, Lent's kind of gone pretty quick for me. I don't know how it's been for you guys. We're in the fifth week. Uh, we're also in the fifth week of the series that we've been doing through the book of Psalms, where we've been taking on the language in the, in the prayer book of the Bible, the prayer book of Jesus himself. We've been taking on this language of prayer, and specifically these, these, these prayers of, of repentance, of these penitent uh, psalms, as we call them. Last week, Father Jonathan, he, he was up here preaching. He talked about how our souls flourish. Tell me if you remember this. Our souls flourish when we confess our sin and are freed from that guilt, the weight, the burden of that sin through the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers us. Do you remember that? How our souls flourish in the forgiveness of sin that Jesus offers us. That was last week. This week, we joined the psalmist in praying this particular phrase that we heard in Psalm 126 this morning. It says this, restore our fortunes, O Lord. This is a prayer that comes directly from a people whose disobedience and disordered lives have left them in a place of drought and of need, like severe need. And so for them to say, Lord, like you once had, would you restore our fortunes again? This is a, this is a people who've been through it. Maybe even recently or still in exile, these people are calling out to the Lord. So for us to, to take on this prayer... Like I'm saying, to take it on for ourselves this morning. We've got to ask some really tough questions this morning, so I hope you you came ready to do that. I know it's spring break, but we're going to get to work this morning. Um, Some of the tough tough questions we have is this. What is wealth? What is wealth? What is it for? What do we do with it when we have it? As God's people, this question is really important. And we don't just overlook it because it's tough for some to... I mean, I I know some of you already, your heart rate's kind of like, oh, great. It's one of those kind of... Don't worry about it. Everybody relax. What is it for? Why do we ask this question of the people as the people of God? Can't we just talk about like just spiritual things? This is so deeply spiritual. This, this matters. Why does this matter? Because all of us, all of us, the entirety of our lives has been buried with Christ and raised to new life in baptism as Christians. All of us, even our wealth, even those areas in our life that we would rather stay private and not talk about publicly like this. We have no problem talking about. Why? Because Jesus has come to save the whole of us. Every last inch of it. So that's why we talk about it. So you need to know a few things as we begin. As a church, this place, we have chosen. We've actually been intentional and chosen to be able to talk about, to be a safe place to talk about really challenging things. Last week, we had this really conversation about friendship, homosexuality in the church. This week, we're talking about money. It seems like we're not doing this on purpose is is, is just kind of what's happening. Uh, but we have chosen as a church to be the kind of place that can talk about these things without fear of judgment, without fear of uh, being shunned or any of that ugliness. It's a part of that typically with, with people. These are just difficult conversations we know. But we want to be able to pray as the psalmist does. We want to be able to take on this language even about money or about wealth without worry about that judgment or guilt. We can do that. So you're invited this morning. This is a safe place. But that's not why we talk about it, um, because we're like brave and this is a safe place and we're so awesome. Um, We talk about this um, because Jesus invites even our pocketbooks to be converted to himself. Luther said, I I believe it's Luther. There's a lot of quotes 
that are associated with them. But let's just say this is true. Luther said there are three conversions of a man, three conversions of a person. The head, the heart, and the wallet. Isn't that true? Three conversions of a man. The head, the heart, and the wallet. So for us, if we want to be fully converted, we want to be a safe place where we can look at these things straight in the face and be converted. So this is a safe place this morning. Jesus calls the entirety of us, even our wallets, uh, to be converted. Which, if we're really honest, and if we were to think about it, the wallet is really the throne room of the God that reigns in this land. So for us to talk about money, and I know for your heart rate to race a little bit, that's not just because you're worried. I think that's because money actually has a grip on people. It is a God. It, judge, it, it guides you, it motivates you, it directs your course of action. This is the power that money has. And so without fear as God's people, because we have been freed from that sin, from that worry, from that guilt, from that shame, we can actually talk about this without worry as a safe place. Now, also, we should say, um, yes, this is a safe place, but also, the truth is, we have all fallen really, really short of the lives that God wants us to live when it comes to money. I'll confess that for all of us. There's not a single person in this room who hasn't made some serious mistakes with money and who hasn't been a really good steward of money. We've all fallen really short of that. But here's the good news. God is faithful. Even still, God is faithful to restore our fortunes. As the psalmist prays. That said, let's look at Psalm 20, 126 together. We'll jump right in. We just prayed this, this prayer this morning. And it speaks of the ways in which the Lord has brought flourishing to his people. It recalls all of these stories. They remembered. Perhaps before they were sent into exile. Before they were sent away into captivity. When they used to laugh. When they used to shout for joy. Do you remember those days when we could laugh and shout for joy? Because of what had, God had done for us. This was their legacy. Almost as if a dream, the psalmist says in 126. God's goodness and glory dwelt with them in the land. So much so that apparently among other countries, among other nations, neighboring countries, they had this reputation as those that God had done great things for. That's how good it was. Now that's the first half of the prayer. Recalling the goodness of God and what he has done for us. The second half of the prayer is basic, based on, on that memory, from that memory, working from it, and the goodness of God as a starting point for the request that comes next in the second half of this prayer. Almost as if to remind God, God, do you remember? This is who you are. This is what you had done for us. So based on who you are and what you have done for us, Lord, do it again. Lord, restore our fortunes like the watercourses of the Negev. Bring flourishing once again to your land. Do it again, Lord. After all, you are the God. You are the only God who truly restores the fortune of your people and brings rain in our drought-stricken lives. This is the God that you are. For those of us who plant crops with tears, the psalmist says, those who sow in despair, may, may their stories be changed. May they harvest in joy. And laughter and have armfuls of the goodness of God. Lord, do that again. Do that again. For us, this sounds really, I say yes to that, all of that, yes. But before we can just kind of jump straight into this and go, that's our prayer, that's us. I want us, there's a few layers of this that I think are a little out of touch. We're just, just out of reach for us. Because for them, salvation, being saved by God, being brought into his goodness, him dwelling in, in the land with his people, was such a deeply um, agrarian kind of image. It was so deeply connected with the tangible land. 
to speak of salvation this way. We, on the other hand, we get our mean saran wrap from H-E-B, right? We're a few degrees removed from the land and our provision from it. We don't really ever have to worry when we go into Sprouts or H-E-B or whatever. We don't really have to worry that there's going to be food there. There's always food there. We have different kinds of worries, though. I mean, we, for instance, this is how different we are from the people that pray this song. We nearly rioted when Bluebell ice cream was out of the grocery store for a few months. I mean, that made like, right? I don't understand Texans yet, but I know that has something to do with it. We don't farm in despair or work the land in tears, if we're really honest. Not like this. But we do go to work. We do go to work, and we do go to work even with worry. Even sometimes in tears, sometimes even in despair. We worry about certain bills. We have certain debt that we're trying to pay off. This stuff keeps us up at night. We lose sleep over this. We worry. We sow crops, metaphorically, with worry. And with a fear of scarcity, even. That's how we work the land of our lives. And it shouldn't surprise us when when that's how we farm, when that's what we plant, that that's what we get is more worry and more fear of scarcity. There's a cycle that we find ourselves in. We ask questions like this. Am I going to run out? Is there going to be enough for me? Those are the things that keep us up. At least sometimes it keeps me up. We forget the God who restores the fortunes of his people. We ask questions like, is there going to be enough? And we forget who God is. That he's given all that we have to us in the first place. We, we think we're living in reality, but... We're actually living in some other delusional world that does not exist because God does exist and he does restore the fortunes of his people. Almost as if sometimes when when God does provide, you could tell me when God does come in just in time or maybe just slightly late, it's almost as if a dream. Can you relate to that? Like the psalmist said, God takes care of us such that way. Almost as if a dream. We become those people whose mouths are filled with laughter. We can't believe what God has done for us. Never would have thought. We forget We don't really believe that the Lord has done great things for us. Sometimes Monday morning, we just talk about it on Sunday, but Monday morning comes and we forget that quickly that God has done such great things for us. We come up to this altar. We receive the forgiveness of sins. We we get to celebrate the fact that our bodies will be resurrected with Christ. And we get to reign for eternity in his kingdom. Come Monday morning, we're worried about the same old stuff again. We forget the Lord has done great things for us. But really, has he? Do we really believe that? What has God done? Some of us may be asking. What has God done for me, Sean? I don't know what he's done for me. Has he ever really provided for me when when I needed him to restore my fortune? What has God really done? If anyone could have really given these questions, really seriously, more than any of us in this room, if anyone could have ever asked these questions, it was the Apostle Paul. It was the Apostle Paul who, after putting it all on the line, leaving it all behind to follow God's call in his life, found himself beaten, totally with nothing, no friends, no family, no community, stuck in a prison cell. And yet he writes to us this morning that he counted it all but loss. It was all rubbish. You remember hearing that? It was all rubbish compared to the value of knowing Jesus. What kind of economic strategy is that? For him, nothing. Nothing even came close. Think about this. Jump in the cell with Paul. With the rats and the cold and no food and all that. 
him writing something like, it didn't even, none, none of that amounts to anything. What amounted to something was the fact that I got to know Jesus. That was everything. Or another scene that we read this morning, like Mary, who came with that really expensive perfume oil stuff. We probably have no idea what that really was, but it was like, I mean, ladies, you go to the mall and you buy super expensive perfume, stuff like that. Like, imagine that, but like really expensive. And in the hands of someone who's really, really poor, and then coming and pouring it in the feet of Jesus, wiping that perfume with her own hair. Judas is saying, what a waste of wealth. What a waste of money. Judas, you don't get it. Mary was anointing the incarnate God in her presence for her burial. There is not a better use of wealth than that. He is worth so much infinitely more than this perfume. It's easy for us to say that. It's quite another thing to understand wealth that way, if we're honest. Wealth is to be poured out at the feet of the incarnate God. We see it clearly with Mary, but why is it so hard for us to wrap our heads around? God is telling us, if you're listening, if you're ready to hear it this morning, God is telling us a radically different story about money and wealth and fortune, what it's for, how to use it, why God has given it to us. He's telling us a totally different story than what the world has given us. The truth is this. There is no greater fortune than knowing Jesus. There's no greater wealth than personally knowing Christ. How is that Jesus is, listen to this, he emptied himself of his infinite heavenly wealth and fortune and position and step, everything that God is, he emptied himself. He humbled himself to the, to the point of death on a cross, the most humiliating, most gruesome pain that a human could experience. Jesus went from heavenly wealth to humbled and dying on a cross. Why? For our sake. Wrap your head around that. Jesus emptied himself for our sake. Why? So that our fortunes, the fortunes of our lives that we are so in poverty over with sin, the way that sin has kind of wrecked things and left us way below the poverty line in terms of the goodness of God, Jesus has emptied himself, rid himself of all of his wealth, that we would be restored in our fortunes. No, now think about this. No amount of wealth, no money, no amount of... Like, no, no good job, no benefits package, no status or connection, no I know some people who know some people kind of stuff, could ever afford what Jesus gives us. Who can buy that? People pay all kinds of money for organ donations, tons of money. Who can buy the resurrection of the dead? Who can, who can purchase? I don't care who you are, who you think you are, what status, what job, where you are in the corporate ladder. Who can purchase or afford the forgiveness of sins? No one, nothing. Only Jesus has done that. Only he could do that. He paid the debt that our sin required of us. So in him, we, we stand up here and we say, this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not just saying that because it's rote and that's what we say every week. I mean, sometimes we do and that's okay. But what we mean by that is that this is truly good news about who Jesus is and the wealth that he's bringing into our lives. He himself offered us final payment. A payment that we didn't deserve, we didn't work for ever, we don't own, we're not entitled to it, but he freely gave it to us. And in that forgiveness of sin, we now share life in the goodness of God. Undeservedly, we get this wealth from him. So what does this, and this is 
I thought we were talking about money today. We totally are. Let me ask you this. What does this kind of wealth, what does being given, uh, being given this kind of fortune, what does that do to things like money? Seems like such a small thing now, doesn't it? What does receiving that kind of heavenly wealth do to us? What does being the recipients of unfathomable heavenly fortune do to us? The cure of our souls and our bodies, the forgiveness of sins. Keep that all in your head. What does that do to our understanding of money? Well, in Jesus, first of all, we see the person of true wealth. In light of him, we can see money in its proper place. We can reimagine, we can reconfigure, even in our own heads and our hearts, what wealth is and what it's for. In light of Jesus, we can see money as worship. This is a way that we can actually ascribe worship means to ascribe worth to something. So with our money, the things that we have so much, we ascribe so much worth to, we can actually say, you're not God. Yes, you're worth something. You're a helpful tool. You do things. But we get to take our money and pour it out of the feet of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, and ascribe worth to him. We get to take money as God in our lives and actually put it right underneath the true God who is actually God in our lives. And all of our wealth, all of our job, all of our life, all of our pocketbook, the head, heart, wallet thing, all of that serves his glory. And now is offered to him in praise and worship, ascribing worth to the one who is heavenly fortune, who is the forgiveness of sins, who is eternal life, Jesus Christ. What is our money for? That is what our money is for, to be used in service and worship of God and his purposes. But another thing, this is another interesting thing about our money. We think, we have this narrative that plays, this kind of tape that plays in the back of our head, that our money, that it's ours, that we deserve it and we earned it. Yes, we are like hardworking people and you guys do, you go out and earn your money. But you have to understand this, um, God actually provides for you. You're not self-made. Let me ask you this, who brought you into the world? Who breathed life into you? Who gave you the opportunities that you have? Maybe the struggles and the challenges that you have. Everything that we are, we're not self-made. Everything we are is a gift from God. Even our money, yeah, even our money. It's not even ours. As Christians, we have turned all of ourselves over to the Lord and said, Lord, it's all yours. What do you want to do with it? So now, instead of being possessors, we're now stewards of something that is not ours. So the question is kind of different. Not what do we do with our money, but Lord, what do you want me to do with your money? And this is the strangest thing. This seems crazy. I know. If this was like broadcast to our neighbors, they'd be like, you guys are nuts. This does not work. They're probably right. It doesn't work. That's not the point for us, is it? This is a surprising thing in all of this. That when we put our financial trust, yes, our financial trust in the provision of God. When we actually put our full weight and we can lean, even with our money, on God who provides for us. We find a surprising wealth given to us in our lives. We find that we're now free from fear of scarcity and we're free from worry. We're free from all the other things that plague all of our neighbors and our friends who are just strapped and pressed under life circumstances with not having enough. We find that we actually, we're safe. We're okay. We're free from those things. We don't have to be controlled by worry and greed day in and day out. We don't have to be kept up at night because we know that we have a heavenly father who sees us, who loves us and who cares for us. He actually provides for us. Do you remember that God? The God who brought you out of darkness and sin, who brought you out of death to life? Do you think he's going to leave you hanging? He may not give you what you want, 
He may not even give you what, you what you think you might need, but he will provide everything that you actually need. You can trust him as your heavenly father for that. Our question changes from things like, will there be enough for me, to comments like, look what the Lord has done for us, like the psalmist. This moment of shift from that question to this announcement of the good things of God, this happens every Sunday in the service. Do you notice? Do you know when that happens? This is why I love the liturgy. Little things like this that mentor us, that invite us into full participation in the life of God. And the offertory, which is probably one of the most, I mean, for some people, that's like the most, like, oh my goodness, do we have to pass around the thing again? And this is awkward. I know for some of us, this is like a really, um, it could be an uncomfortable moment. And uh, for Americans, though, for Austinites, this moment in the service is probably the most critical moment of repentance for us. A people who have made money God. It's uncomfortable not because um, it's a private matter. As much as honestly I think it's because this is the God that reigns in our hearts so often. This is the God that reigns in our neighborhoods so easily. This is the moment in the offertory where that God is like body checked off the throne. And we ascribe worth to Jesus, King Jesus once again and say you are in charge. In you there is fortune. Not in our pocketbooks. Besides, how can we honestly pray, God, restore our fortunes, when our fortunes are the very things that are keeping us captive from him? How do we pray, God, restore us? Restore the money that we possess, when our money actually possesses us and controls us. So in the offertory, we have this radical, super subversive, very defiant act of worship of God, saying, money is no longer in charge, but King Jesus, you are in charge. I ascribe all my wealth, all my trust. All my life, my faith I put in you, not in my pocketbook. And when we acknowledge this, and when we, when we come to God and worship this way, this really beautiful thing happens. We find that freedom that comes from putting our trust in something that will actually provide for us, and not something as thin as like money or people or jobs. We find freedom. And we find that the fortune of our lives are actually restored. We find that comfort from the Holy Spirit. So for us, this needs to be said, tithing is not some like guilt-ridden, heavy, like, oh, i got to give money to the church or else they're not going to keep the lights on, you know. Um, yeah, we pay bills with that stuff. But tithing is actually this really beautiful act of worship filled with really grateful hearts. If you do not give with a grateful heart, full of joy, and expect, like, expecting the wonderful things of God, don't give. We don't need you to give. We have a God who provides. That's not how the scriptures invite us to come to give. They don't say, don't give out of compulsion or guilt. Don't do it because you're just like pressured into doing it. It may be tough. It's certainly tough. Believe me, it's tough. That's not a reason not to do it either. But come to the, to the, the altar with your offering, with hearts full of joy, expecting the God who actually is. Remember who he is. And step out in faith and offer him your money. Ascribe worth to him, even with the thing that we put so much weight on. And I, but I know, I know this is a challenge. I don't mean to be uh, not sympathetic. Um, I know it's a challenge. It's a sacrifice. It's super tough. But I want to encourage you. It's actually, uh, it's a start. It's actually not that hard. You just give something. So, Lord, you know where I'm at today. You know I don't have my finances together. You know what a mess things are in my life. I've been there before. But, Lord, here's what I've got today. And I'm going to commit to giving that. Even if it's a small amount, I'm going to give that every Sunday. And or I'm going to pray. And what I think you'll find is that God's going to open you up and give you more of an ability to trust in his provision, even when it doesn't look like it could work out. 
It's a spiritual discipline, kind of like praying or other kinds of spiritual disciplines that we take on. It takes time. It takes practice. It takes conditioning. You can't run the marathon in the first lap, uh, the first go around. But this, this is kind of one of those things. You just step out a little bit in faith and say, Lord, you're the God who restores fortune. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test you in that. Scriptures say we test the Lord in that and he, and he will be, prove himself to be faithful. And if you're worried, like, man, this is really scary, Sean. I don't know if this is going to work. I may lose a lot of money in this. Rest assured, you will lose a lot of money in this. It is super scary. And this does not, like, have an ROI, like your bank account's going to inflate. That's not the way this works. There's some that preach, like, well, if you give money, God will give and get you money. That's not actually how this works. We don't give because of what we're going to get back. We give because he's worthy, period. Our lives are spent by the Lord as he sees fit. And we are down with that. Some poet said, my life is like a coin in the master's pocket. He can spend me as he chooses. Isn't that good? Isn't that our prayer? Don't we want that? So we give because we worship God without guilt, without shame, but because we say, hallelujah, hosanna in the highest. Lord, you are worth everything in more than what I could offer you. Lord, so I give it to you. So it is scary. It is a sacrifice. But in doing so, we leave behind the God in this land. And proclaim the true king. We proclaim the true God. I want to encourage you. Ask him for help. He's faithful. He hears you. He knows what you need. Ask the Lord for help. Lord, teach me how to give. Um, Michelle and I, when we were in grad school, we had, we had kids. We just left this six-figure income in the technical industry and moved down to L.A. because the Lord was calling us. We had, like, no money. We were, we were like, deeply below the poverty line. It was scary. But we were trusting in the Lord. It was like, somehow going to make this work. Looking back, I'm like, I would never do that again. It was like the most irresponsible thing. But, uh, but we were called. We knew that the Lord called us. And so what do you do? Well, you just, you just go with it and say, Lord, we need your help. We can't see it all. And even in those early times when we were so poor, 10% of our income, it felt like a lot. But it actually wasn't that much. Like 10% of nothing is nothing. You know? <laughs> So if that's where you're at today, like, Sean, you don't understand. I am super poor. No, I think I do. Like, I get it. I get super poor. Um, And 10% of that, God's a mathematician. He knows how that works. But he wants your heart in it. He wants 10% of whatever it is that you think controls your life. He wants actually to to turn that over and say, no, just trust me. Lean on me. And even 10%. And even still today, um, it's become a way for Michelle and I, our family, to repent of worry and temptation and all the things that come with like trying to have a grip on our money and make sure that there's enough for us and that the future is taken care of. The future isn't taken care of by our money. We, we start to really easily slip into that narrative of like, no, if we can put enough away, if we can position our portfolio in a certain way, then salvation has come. Let me just call that out for what it is. That's, that's paganism, people. That is not Christianity. We're reminded in our giving, in our joyful giving, that God is the God, the only God, the living God who restores the fortunes of his people. And there's nothing else. There's no alternative. This is the God we worship this morning. The God who has given us life itself, the resurrection from the dead. This is the God in his generosity that has given us this through his own son, his very own son, Jesus. So I want to encourage you this morning. Not to be hidden in shame, not to battle with this in your own heart and just kind of be condemned and go, I can't come back to this church. They talk about money. That, you're, we're all on the same team here, guys. This is tough. You're, you're, you're not condemned. There's none of that here. Instead, we want to actually wrestle with this together. That's why we call it out. The scriptures give it to us. This isn't my agenda. You can't like dodge that bullet in scripture. It's kind of all over the page in scripture. And so we talk about it. But I want to invite you to come out. It's okay. It's safe. 
You can learn to worship God. You can be discipled even in that hidden area in your life that you'd rather look over. Learning to trust our Heavenly Father has restored our fortunes in Jesus can be tough at times. But there's good news. He is faithful to restore our fortunes, the fortunes of our lives in Jesus. And even every Sunday, evermore, he invites us deeper still into this communion with him. Come closer. Come closer. No, don't leave your pocketbook on your chair. Bring that up to come closer. All of you, come closer. I want to invite you guys just to take a moment of silence. We do this after every sermon. Just to ask the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me? And in this time, I want to ask you, would you just ask the Lord... God, look at my bank account, my checking account, the way I spend my money, how my heart is or is not wrapped up in my finances. And just speak to me, Lord. What is it that you'd like to say to me this morning? We're going to take a quick moment to say, uh, to, to invite God's uh, voice in our lives. And then we're going to get up as a church and proclaim the gospel together as a response. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.